0: I want you to imagine something. I know you've all seen this before at some point. I'm pretty sure all of you have, even if you're young. You have probably seen a newborn kitten, right? Have you seen a newborn kitten before? Most of you know what a newborn. They're real little things. They're just they can fit in your hand. A brand new, uh, newborn kitten. Um, so think about that little kitten. Okay, just imagine it and you're holding him in your hand right after his mother gave birth to him. And now I want you to think about a full-grown cat. We have a big cat, uh, a big boy cat, Tomcat, uh, called Plumps, actually, at our house. He's not so plumpy anymore. We've put him on a diet. But, um, uh, <laughs> but Plumps is a pretty good-sized cat. He's not like, the, like he once was. He's a big cat now. So I want you to think of a full-grown cat and a baby, baby cat. Kitten, rather. Now, there are some definite differences, aren't there, between a full-grown cat, like my cat, and a little baby cat, right? Some differences. So, what are those differences? Well, obviously, size, right? Size is one difference between a kitten and a cat, full-grown cat. Also, an adult cat can see versus a newborn cat, if I'm not mistaken, newborn kittens, are born with their eyes shut. That's right, people are nodding, so I was right about that. They're born with their eyes shut, so they can't see when they're newborns. But the full-grown cat can see. Uh, and also, cats, unlike kittens, are able to run fast. They can run really fast, actually, uh, for their size. But a newborn kitten, I'm not sure is, a newborn kitten is even able to walk. I'm pretty sure they're not, as I recall. Yeah, they're not able to walk. But the, but the adult cat can, okay? So, there are both um, definite similarities between, an, uh, or dissimilarities between a baby cat and adult cat, but there are also similarities. What are some of the similarities? How Are they the same? Well, a baby cat as well as an adult cat both have four legs, right? Both got four legs. That's the same. Uh, both an adult cat and a baby kitten have uh, fur. They're furry, right? Uh, and both an adult cat, and I think this is true, not sure about this one, but I think they both purr. Okay? Maybe not, I'm not sure about that. But they both eat, anyway, they both eat. There's another, that's that's another similarity. They both eat. Okay? So there's similarities between an adult cat and a small cat, but also dissimilarities. That means there are ways in which they are different, as well as ways in which they are the same. Well, the reason I bring this cat example up to you, children, is we're going to look today at similarities and dissimilarities, not of adult cats and baby cats. But we're going to look at, because this passage that we're reading from today uh, talks about it, we're going to look at the similarities and dissimilarities between um, high priests in the Old Testament age and Jesus who is described in this passage and elsewhere as our great high priest so there are similarities ways in which Aaron and his fo- those who came after him as high priest in Moses uh, in the old testament we're going to look at similarities uh between them and Jesus but also major differences between Jesus and those high priests Aaron being the first of them Okay, that's the sermon right there, similarities and dissimilarities. So before I uh, remind you all of that in my two major points, I just want to say this, uh, in God's inscrutable wisdom, uh, infinite wisdom, he created the office of high priest in the uh, Old Testament era, in particular under the Mosaic Administration of the covenant of grace during that age. And he created the office of high priest to be, to serve a function. And that function was to act as a type or a shadow, the writer of the Hebrew refers to it that way, uh, as a type or a, a shadow of a far greater high priesthood to come, that was to come later on. In other words, it was not uh, extant during the during the time of Moses, of the Mosaic Covenant, but was came about when Jesus came on the scene uh, and became our uh, great high priest. But the Old Testament high priest, Aaron, and his uh, biological descendants who filled the office of a high priest after him, uh, those that high priesthood resembled and prefigured Jesus' priesthood. In many ways, as we'll see shortly, but there were also definite ways in which it was not the same as Jesus' priesthood. Um, but it foreshadowed the coming of Jesus as our great high priest and occupying that office of the divine high priest uh, that was promised in the uh, Old Testament, actually in Psalms chapter uh, Psalm twenty-two. Excuse me, Psalm two, the G- Psalm one ten. There we go. Wow, get my sounds mixed up. At any rate, uh, this office of the Old Testament high priest, the Aaronic or Levitical high priest, I'm going to call it both things during the course of the sermon, was an imperfect, uh, shadow of Jesus' high priesthood, which as we just read here a few moments ago, is called the priest, the Melchizedekan priesthood. That's a mouthful. Uh, Melchizedekan priesthood, the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's described as Jesus' priesthood, which differed from the Aaronic priesthood, or the Levitical priesthood. Aram was a Levite. Um, uh, there's similarities, but there were, uh, but Jesus' office of the Mel, in the Melchizedekan priesthood far outstripped the Glory of the Aaron and his successors, and also the value of Aaron's ministry and those of his high priestly successors. Jesus, uh, Jesus' high priesthood is far more valuable, and we'll see that as we as we work our way through the passage. The passage before us, as I've already indicated, highlights both similarities and dissimilarities between the Aaronic high priesthood and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do the same in the outline. Two points. Uh, First of all, we're going to look at the similarities between the Aaronic or Levitical high priest, or priests, and our great high priest, Jesus. And then we are going to look, uh, the, the remainder of our time, at the differences between the Aaronic, Levitical high priests, and our great high priest. So, Two points. Let's dive into the first one. Let's look at the similarities between Aaron and his successors and Jesus. First of all, uh, uh, this is uh from this text, either explicit or implicit in it. First of all, we see in verses one and four, and I'll read that in a minute, that neither Aaron nor his successors, uh excuse me, neither Aaron and his successors nor Jesus, remember this is a difference, neither Aaron nor Jesus. Took to themselves the office of high priest. This is a similarity. But both the Aaronic high priests and Jesus in his high priesthood were appointed to their respective. Offices by God himself. The Jewish high priests of old, uh, Aaron and his successors, uh, they were appointed, look at verse 1, for every high priest, and he's talking about the Old Testament time period now, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in all things pertaining to God. Notice, the those high priests were appointed. They were appointed. Um, also, down in verse 4, it indicates uh, no one takes the honor, meaning the honor of the high priesthood, to himself. In other words, goes out and grabs it. But uh, everyone receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So, it's God who initiates. God who determines who the high priests are going to be. And he said, it's Aaron. And all his biological descendants. So he didn't have to keep pointing to new high priests after Aaron because it was always Aaron's descendants who were to fulfill the high priestly office under the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, so Aaron was uh and his successors were appointed by God, but so too, folks, was Jesus, was appointed by God the Father. And this is evidenced in verses five and six of our text. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, so also Christ did not, so notice the so also the comparison, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. But he who says to him said to him, This is from Psalm 2, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he says also in another passage, and here's God appointing Jesus um, uh, in prophecy. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So God appointed Christ, just as he also appointed Aaron and his line to be high priest. That was one way that uh, Jesus and the Aaronic priests were similar. A second way is that both Jesus and the Aaronic priests were consecrated uh Ordained or anointed, you can use all, or even set apart, you can use all of those phrases. They were consecrated, ordained, anointed, set apart in order to qualify them to approach God with their respective sacrifices. Both Jesus and Aaron's line. The fact that the Levitical line of high priests was consecrated or or, uh, set apart by God is implied in verses 1 through 3 that I just read you. I won't bother rereading it. Uh, It's implied there, uh, and I could spend time telling you how that's the case, but I won't. Let me give you a clear illustration of it from Exodus. Uh, And also, by the way, Leviticus 8 does the same thing. But Exodus chapter 29, verse Verses 1 and following describe the consecration of the Aaronic priests. So I'll just read the first verse, maybe the second verse, and then I'll stop. Because it goes on and covers most of the chapter, actually. But it starts out, he's talking about Aaron and his sons in the previous verse of the previous chapter. uh, And they shall be on Aaron and his sons. And Then skip down to 29.1. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, to minister. So notice, consecration is for the purpose of ministry. So now, this is what you shall do to them, Moses, talking to Moses, to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. And then he goes on: take one bull, a young bull, and two rams without blemish and unblemish, without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened water, wafers rather, uh, spread with oils. You shall make them of fine flour and uh, wheat flour. And he goes on about how this ritual is to take place to accomplish the consecration of Aaron and his sons to be high priests. So, Aaron had to be consecrated, as did his successors. But so, too, Jesus was consecrated. This is evident in verses 8 and 9 of our passage. Um, And I'm going to read the New American Standard here, uh, but I'm going to change it in a second. But New American Standard says in verse 8 of chapter 5 in Hebrews Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus, you see, that having been made perfect is a description of, even though it doesn't use the word here, of Jesus consecration, if you will, that occurred through his sufferings unto death. Jesus was consecrated by the Father through what he suffered on the cross. Don't ask me to explain that, but just know that's the case. Um, And he, too, was consecrated so that his sacrifice that he offered would be acceptable before the Father, before the triune God, really including himself and the Spirit, uh, as he presented that offering in the heavenly holy of holies, that sacrifice, he being the high priest offering the sacrifice, and the sacrifice being himself as well, on behalf of his people. But he had to he had to be qualified, you see, he had to be consecrated or uh ordained to that to that, uh, so that he could effectively minister with that sacrifice, and that was part of what we read there through through his o- suffering and the obedience that he displayed in that suffering unto death, that made him qualified to that office. That's a second similarity between Aaron, the Aaronic high priest, and our great high priest, Jesus. A third similarity uh, that is alluded to uh, in in this passage is that both. Jesus, or both the Aaronic high priest and the great high priest, Jesus, offered sacrifices for the sins of those they represented. They offered sacrifices for sin. It says just as much in verse 1 of our text, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in all things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, uh, that's what the purpose of the um, Old Testament high priest was, to offer sacrifices for sins, and so to Jesus as well, our great high priest. Now, this isn't clearly uh, stated in this passage, but it is later in Hebrews and elsewhere, uh, many places actually in the Bible. I'll just read he- Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, which makes this point. Turn there with me. We read there, I'll back up to verse 11. And every priest stands... He's talking about the Old Testament high priests. By the way, there were... Well, he's writing this. This probably was written before 70 A.D., before the destruction of Jerusalem. And there were still Jewish high priests in Jerusalem going through the motions. Now they shouldn't be they should have believed in Jesus and taken their robes off and say you're you're our high priest and we don't need these types and shadows anymore of sacrifices and temples and so on but the unbelieving jews of 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 the writer of the hebrews day there was still high priests. there was still a high priest in jerusalem anyway so he says and every high priest stands daily ministering verse 11 and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins But then verse 12, but he, Jesus, Christ, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, which is a sign that his work was complete when he sat down. Jesus, like his Old Testament, um, those who typified him in the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons, offered a sacrifice, one sacrifice for sins indeed, for all time. Another similarity. Yet another similarity between uh, the ironic high priest and the Melchizedekin high priest, our Savior, is that both were fully human. Both were fully human. Uh, this is obvious from the fact that the Jewish high priest was, to quote verse 1 there, taken from among men. He was, was a man taken from among men to be the high priest, right? Uh, But, uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, he too, as we know, was fully human. That is uh, stated in our text uh, uh, in a a truncated way, when he says there in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, in other words, before he ascended into heaven, he, Jesus, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Notice he says in the days of his flesh, a reference to his incarnation. Jesus was and still is, uh, enfleshed, uh, fully human. Just now he's a glorified, he's the glorified God-man. So both, because both of these men, the Old Testament high priest and our high priest were fully human, There's some other implications of that. This is another similarity. Both partook of all the weaknesses inherent in the human condition after the fall. I'm going to explain that. Hold on. Both partook of all the weaknesses inherent in the human condition after the fall, including, but not limited to, susceptibility to temptation. Because without the fall, there is no temptation. Right, there's no sin, there's no temptation because you know Satan didn't, wouldn't have done what he did, so on and so forth. But both the um, the Old Testament ironic high priests and the, uh, uh, the our great high priest partook of all the weaknesses inherent in the human condition post fall. Now, this is obvious and obviously the case for the Levitical high priest. Look at verse two. Remember, he said in verse one. He needed. He, in order to, he needed to offer sacrifice, um, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then in verse two, it says, "He that uh, earthly high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since why? Since he himself also is beset with weaknesses, Um, human frailty. In other words, so the uh, the Levitical high priests were were uh, humans." Uh, struggling in uh, in their just being human, if I can put it that way, post fall. But this was also true of Jesus during his time upon the earth. Look back at verse fifteen in the last chapter there, chapter four. I'll start in verse fourteen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has, in other words, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, he speaks, he speaks of that specific struggle of being human, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, in his case, without sin. And by the way, if you also look at the weaknesses uh, are are alluded to in verse 7 of chapter 5, when he speaks of Jesus uh, offering prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Grief. He suffered grief uh, and sorrow uh, and the prospect of and ultimately experienced death uh, as well. So Jesus um, suffered from the weaknesses inherent in the human condition. Notice I didn't say sin. All but that, though. And because both Levitical high priest and our great high priest, if we're Christians, he is ours, if he's not If you're not a Christian, you don't have a high priest and you're in trouble. We'll get into that more at the end. But because both the Levitical or Aaronic high priests and Jesus, the great high priest, partook of all of the weaknesses inherent in the human condition, I'll put it that way, this is yet another similarity, both were able to deal gently, and Jesus' case still is, able to deal gently and compassionately with those whom he is representing like the Old Testament high priest did. Again, verse 2. He, the Old Testament high priests, uh, of that that type of high priesthood, the Levitical priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Um, Some, and perhaps many, of the people whom the Jewish high priest of the Old Testament represented are characterized here by the writer of the Hebrews, who's writing this book. They're characterized as ignorant and misguided. Interesting kind of description of them. Um, These were people who, the ignorant and the misguided, as opposed to the flagrant violators of God's law, different category, but the ignorant and the misguided among the uh, Jewish population or even Gentiles who were um, uh, God-fearers, uh, were those who sinned out of ignorance, uh, were not realizing they were sinning when they were doing it, or were sinning as a result of having been deceived. As opposed to, again, those who were willfully defiant of God's uh, will and high-handedly sinned against God. The high priest represented those misguided and ignorant folks. But Aaron and his high priestly descendants, they were able to deal gently with those folks, um, and in a way that was pastoral, if I can put it that way, because Aaron and his high priestly descendants, the good ones at least, understood their spiritual plight, the spiritual plight of those people whom they were acting on behalf of. They understood their plight firsthand, account of, account of, on account of the fact that they too suffered from the same maladies, the same problems, the same weaknesses, the same sorrows. They were partook of the of the um, unpleasant human condition fully, just like those they were ministering on behalf of to God. Undoubtedly, many of those whom Jesus represents in his high priestly capacity, that's you and me, by the way, if you're a Christian, can be characterized also by the adjectives, ignorant, and misguided. We've all been there, or are there. He too, Jesus, far more so than Aaron, can deal gently um, with such people uh, whom he represents, us, on account of his exposure in his uh, earthly life to much of the sorrow, the difficulty, the challenge, um, the, the, the burden of being human in a fallen world. Jesus knows what it is to be live in this world and to suffer in this world, because, of course, he was in this world for 30 years, 33 years of his life. So what, you might say, Well, so what if Jesus was human? Why is that so important, preacher? Why should your great high priest's participation in and Thorough familiarity with your human condition post-fall. Why should that be so important to you? I'm suggesting it should be. Why? Because your Savior knows what you are going through. That's why. He can empathize. Not just sympathize, but empathize. He knows experientially what you're experiencing in life. He went through it himself, fully. What do I mean by this? He knows what it feels like to be sorely tempted. You know, we might have the occasional demon show up in our presence and uh, figure out some way to tempt us. Call our attention to something that's unholy on a billboard or what have you. I doubt too many of us have had Satan personally show up to tempt us he personally showed up to tempt Jesus. It doesn't get worse than that. He knows what that feels like. He knows in a way that beyond even what um, you and I can understand in spite of our own loss, he knows what it's like to suffer loss. To suffer from uh, persecution. To suffer from uh, a lack of respect from others. He knows exactly what that's like. He knows what, it's exactly what it's like to be unbelievably discouraged. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. There's almost nothing, I think there is nothing, with the exception of temptation from within, which he didn't experience. But everything else, he experienced with you, that you experience. So, that should mean something to you. It should mean a lot to you. You can never say to God, or even think, he doesn't know what I'm going through, he's God. Dead wrong. If you think that way, or say that. This is why. He is, is, was and is the God-man. Okay? Your high priestly mediator who offered, who, who acts on your behalf and who brought a sacrifice and that sacrifice was himself, which was accepted because of the value of that sacrifice and the one offering it. On your behalf, and you get all the benefits of that if you're a Christian. If you're not, you get none of those benefits. In fact, you get the opposite of those benefits. If you remain in your unbelief, you will suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell because you're a rebel. We're all born rebels. I was born a rebel. Hated God. Didn't know it, but I did. Every one of us, every last one of us has hated God. It might have been in utero, I don't know. Uh, If you were converted early in life, it might have been uh, some point after you were conceived, I don't know, uh, before you were born. But most of us probably weren't converted in utero. And prior to being born again, we hated the true God. We might have had a God. But always that God ends up being ourself until we bow our knee uh, through faith in Christ to the true God. And you are your own God right now, if you're not a Christian. And you are a despicable God, by the way. You're a lousy God. And you're not the true God. And your idolatry of self is despicable. Just as mine was, and the degree that's still in me is. It's despicable to God. It offends him indescribably. And you will pay for that love of self and and, uh, uh, corresponding hatred uh, of God. You will pay for that eternally unless you bow the knee to Christ and realize that He's your only hope of of escaping from that divine judgment that you deserve, that we all deserve here in this room and in this world. You will—you must flee to Him, not by looking to your baptism, although baptism is very important. Not by looking to your church membership, although church membership is very important. Not by looking to your good deeds, although your good deeds are very important after you've been converted. But you must look to Jesus Christ alone to save you, to forgive you, bring about God's forgiveness of you, and to reconcile you to him. And he's your only hope of doing that. Do you believe that? Have you acted on that if you say, oh, I believe that, yeah, I believe that. Intellectual belief doesn't cut it. you have to you have to act on it from your heart. So you need to hear that in this sermon. That's what you need to hear. Flee to Christ in faith and faith alone. That brings me to my second point. and uh, we'll, we'll, don't worry, we're not not as long. So thats we've talked about the similarities between uh, the earthly uh, high priest, the ironic high priest, the Levitical high priest, and Jesus as the great high priest. But now let's look at the differences uh, in our last remaining moments here uh, in the sermon. The differences between the ironic high priest and priests and us. First of all, while Aaron and his descendants were mere men, only men, you know, you can complete the sentence, most of you, our great high priest was also and is also 100% God. Divine. He is Jehovah, or better pronunciation, but still a guess, Yahweh. So let me look at verse 8. And this is where it's found in our text. Although he was a son, says the New American Standard. Poor translation. What is, uh, the better translation of this is, son though he was, and then it goes on. It's actually, and I'm just going to bore you because I'm just to let you know that there's Greek behind this. It's a qualitative noun, not an indefinite noun. It doesn't have the definite article in front of it. That's why uh, New American Standard translated, although he was a son. But a son implies that it was an indefinite noun. And that's not what the writer of Hebrews was using it there as. He's using it as a qualitative noun. And therefore the translation should be, son though he was. Which is a clear reference, son, is a clear reference to Jesus' messianic identity and divinity. The Messiah of the Old Testament was God himself. And so son is another way of saying God, though he was, God the son, though he was, even he was not granted an exception to the universal rule that learning comes through suffering. Which is my uh, elaboration on verse 8 there. Son, though he was, even he was not granted an exception to the universal rule that learning comes through suffering. your high priest is fully God as well as fully man. And the fact that that Jesus was also, in addition to being man, he was and is the divine son, the second person of the Godhead, this itself testifies to the vast superiority, indeed infinite superiority, of Jesus' high priesthood versus Aaron's. This is the first, and not the only, but the first compelling reason you and I need to thank God that Jesus is our high priestly representative before him and not Aaron. I want to say you need to thank your lucky stars, but I don't believe in luck and that's a terrible thing. But I, It just popped into my head for some bizarre reason. I'm sorry. Uh, there is no such thing as luck. And stars don't have anything to do with our, for our future. You get the idea. Even I shouldn't have mentioned that. Anyway, I'm an imperfect preacher. Just hear what Jesus said and forget that. Okay. Second. Secondly, in terms of differences, uh, is the Iranic, the, uh, There we go. The ironic or Levitical high priests not only had to offer sacrifices for the sins of those whom they represented but they also had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Verse 3 makes this point. And because of, because of it, he, the, the Old Testament high priest, is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself, because he, too, was a sinner. I mentioned a moment ago that both the Jewish high priest and Jesus partook of all the, I use the word, constitutional weaknesses associated with being human. Being a creature in a post fallen world, a human creature in the post fallen world, Jesus did partake of all those constitutional, and I use that word very intentionally, weaknesses. Creaturely weaknesses. The all important difference between the sons of Aaron and Aaron himself, and of course Jesus, is that while the weaknesses of the Jewish high priesthood's humanity led them into sin, the weaknesses of Jesus' humanity did not. Verse nine makes this point: having been made perfect, so it points to his perfection. That's kind of a off, uh, off-handed allusion to his uh, his perfection, and it applies uh, the the going through the time of serving as Messiah on the earth. In addition to that, uh, but. But it alludes to at least in part. But more clearly, this point is made in again verse uh, fifteen of the previous passage, the previous chapter, uh, uh, that he sympath- cannot. Uh, he is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is one who has been, but he is one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Uh, and chapter seven says it even more eloquently, um, or fully, I should say. Chapter seven of Hebrews, starting in verse twenty-six, and then verse twenty-seven. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, talking about Christ here. For it was fitting that we should have, verse 26, such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice that too. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, Who does not need daily, like those high priests, meaning the Aaronic high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did, Jesus did, once for all, when he offered up himself. Jesus being human, and, and struggling under the weaknesses and infirmities associated with being a creature, and not only a creature, but a creature living in a fallen world, which include a world that tempts or has temptation that comes from it, not from within, but from without. Jesus, uh, though he struggled with those uh, burdens, I'll put it that way, of being human, he never gave in to any of the temptations that he faced, unlike you, unlike me. This is an additional, this is, this serves as additional critical testimony to the superiority of Jesus' high priesthood over Aaron's. And it's another reason, compelling reason why you and I need to be deeply grateful that Jesus is our high priestly representative before God and not some sinner named Aaron. Theme here is gratitude, by the way. And related to this difference, that Jesus uh, didn't succumb to sin while Aaron and his followers' descendants did, related to this difference is the next dissimilarity, and that is that unlike the Levitical high priests, the Father, God the Father, heard the high priestly prayers of Jesus on account of his perfect reverence for and obedience to the Father. Verse 7 again of our text, chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, of Jesus' flesh, when he was on earth, in other words, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And notice, and he was heard, notice again, because of his piety. Because of his godliness. Which was perfect godliness. And Jesus was heard because he was perfect. Because he never sinned. Because he all his works were perfectly good works. He always obeyed his own law before the Father. And thus he was accepted on account of his works. You see, you and I are saved by works, if you're a Christian. Not yours, certainly not mine, but we are saved by the works, the perfect obedience of Christ under the first covenant, the covenant of works that Jesus fulfilled, and that's why we get to benefit under the covenant of grace, with him as our representative, because he obeyed where you and I have disobeyed. And continue, by the way, less and less if you're a Christian over time, uh, but continue to disobey. Jesus obeyed, and his obedience is what satisfied the Father. And indeed himself, the triune God, I should put it that I could put it that way as well. So he was heard, and his sacrifice was accepted. Uh, I'll add that in, on account of his reverence for and obedience to God. He was perfectly godly, perfectly devout. He was, um, and that is not true, was not true of Aaron or any of his high priestly descendants. Their prayers, though God heard their prayers if they were believers, but their prayers, the Aaronic priests, high priests, were not heard on account of their own imperfect, sin-stained piety. They may have had piety, but it was sin-stained. You may have piety. But it's sin-stained. It's imperfect. God must see perfection. And he does when he looks at Christ and Christ's righteousness that you're clothed with. But he was not heard. Aaron nor his godly descendants were not heard because of their own piety. To the degree that their prayers were heard and answered... Was an anticipation of and therefore on account of the exalted and enthroned Christ's perfect obedience. The Father still hears the prayers, the intercession of Christ for you in heaven today. He still hears Christ's prayers and intercession for you on account of his perfect obedience as the Messiah, as the, as the mediator that God appointed and anointed on your behalf. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen. It's the only reason you get hurt. The only reason. The only reason I get hurt is because Jesus is praying while I'm praying. Or you're praying. Another dissimilarity. There's a major difference between the consecration of these two high priests, Jesus and the Aaronic priests. The Levitical or Aaronic high priests and their sacrifices on behalf of the people were only made acceptable to God through uh, the then-future consecration of Christ himself. They were made acceptable, but they were, they were ceremonial offerings, and they were made acceptable, but their offering was only made acceptable by virtue of, the, in the future, coming Christ, in the future from their day. Jesus' sacrifice alone was intrinsically acceptable to God. Their sacrifices were not, although they were made acceptable because of the value of Christ's sacrifice. And through your spiritual union with Christ by faith alone, if you are indeed united to Christ um, by faith alone, you too are acceptable to him. And you too are able to draw near to God without fear and with confidence to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Another difference coming near the end, there is a monumental difference between the nature or value of the sacrifices offered up by the Aaronic high priests and the nature and value of the one offered up by Jesus. Jewish high priests offered up their live, the lives of animals to God on people's behalf. On a man-made altar they did this. In an earthly man-made tabernacle or temple they did this. Animals whose blood never truly atoned for the sins of those on whose behalf they were sacrificed. Uh, that point is made by the writer of Hebrews in uh, uh, chapter 10. You know the passage. It says uh, the the blood of bulls and goats does not uh, take away sins. Where is it uh, here? Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm better read my own notes. Uh, 10:4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Never did. Never did. Why did the people get forgiven? By virtue of what Christ was going to do. And as they looked to the coming Messiah, as they saw the animal sacrifices being killed, who represented him, or pointed to him. That's how they were made atoned. But it wasn't the blood of those animals that did anything for them. Jesus offered up his own divine life, human life, Divine life, if I can put it that way, the life of the God Man. He offered it up on His people's behalf. It was an it was an historic, it was an historical event. The crucifixion was, and the death and the resurrection of Christ was. It was an historical event that this Lord's Supper vividly reminds us of, we're about to partake of. He offered up His sacrifice. In the greater, Jesus did, in the greater, more perfect, heavenly tabernacle slash temple. Not made with hands, as chapter 9, verse 11 of Hebrews tells us. And his lifeblood, unlike that of the animals, truly and fully atoned for the sins of those on whose behalf he was sacrificed. That is, all believers in Christ Christ. He made atonement. He accomplished purification, as we read back in chapter 1, verse 3. It was done. It doesn't yet need to be done. It was done 2,000 years ago for you and for me. This means that if you're a Christian, your sins are completely hidden from God's sight as the judge, as your judge. He doesn't see as the divine judge your sins at all. And the punishment they deserve has been fully absorbed by Jesus, so there's no debt left. There's no, there's no uh, debt uh, that God says, hey, this hasn't been paid. Been paid. Rejoice, Christian. Also, unlike Aaron and his descendants, Jesus' high priesthood never comes to an end. Verse 6 makes that point. Thou art a priest forever. Not true of the Levitical high priests; They kept dropping like flies. Chapter 7, verses 23 and 24 makes that point. Um, But Jesus' priesthood is unending. And then the final difference is that Jesus, unlike his Levitical counterparts, is able to accomplish a salvation on your behalf and mine that can never be taken away from you. They were just spilling blood and Slitting throats. And going through some rituals. Yes, that was important in that day. But that didn't accomplish anybody's salvation. It still doesn't. Contrary to what some churches might teach. Although, most churches aren't using slaying animals anymore. But you know my point. See the comfort here, folks? No matter, how, no matter how difficult your life is, no matter how burdened you feel by your sins, by your mistakes, by your foolishness, by your weak faith, Jesus is greater. Jesus has got you. good because he's good let's pray